Guys, mental health is something that Dan and I are extremely passionate about, which is why it excites us to say that we are partnering with BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and our podcast. BetterHelp is the world's leading therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BacksideGroundBalls. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BacksideGroundBalls. By Riverside. Welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Super excited to be back here on the pod. My name is Trevor Powers, and I am joined by my co-host, Dan Galati, as well as our producer, Phoebe. Dan and Phoebe, how are we doing today? Are we doing well on this Tuesday evening? Doing good. Excited for this podcast. And Phoebe, how are you? Good, good, good. So uh, got a lot of content that we want to cover today. Obviously, there's a lot of happenings across baseball and probably the largest talking point um, that is in the most recent news is Aaron Judge. And he looks in the dugout halfway when the pitcher's in his windup. So Dan, what you can go serious or unserious here. What are your initial thoughts about what Aaron Judge was looking at? Because I saw some funny stuff out there that, that of what he was looking at. I got a few. I got a few quick things. One, so Buster Olney tweeted today at ten forty a.m. that there's an assumption on the Jays side that their pitchers catchers were betraying the identity of the forthcoming pitches last night, and that is. This was being conveyed to Aaron Judge, and this is why he was glancing to his right for info. I think what we need to hold on to from that was the pitchers and catchers were portraying the identity of the forthcoming pitches. He made that sound so formal. He wrote that like it was a Shakespeare monologue. Um, But this is what bothers me, too, because you see these people all the time, like Buster Olney, who has how many followers on Twitter? Uh, 1.3 million. So he tweets something that's like a little bit weird and written like uh, Bill Shakespeare uh, drew it up. And so, of course, but then like what bothers me is like he takes the cheese. He eats the cheese. He's a little mouse and someone throws the bait out there for him and obviously calls him on how weird he sounds for taking the bait. And he takes the bait and he responds and he gets into a six 
tweet thread argument with some random guy about using the term betraying the identity of the forthcoming pitches. I hate when people who are like reporters or like people that are well known and have a lot of followers get into stupid debates with people. Buster, you're not gonna win. Like it's a lose lose for you, man. Stop tweeting back with Larry Israel from like you know Wissahickon about whether or not like you use the term freaking betraying forthcoming pitches. Um, that's my first thought. My second thought is is this is so stupid. <laughs> I hate Major League Baseball when we do stuff like this because it's like every few weeks now we're going to do this. And it's like I feel like there's some deep state Astros conglomerate that just like plants people to accuse other teams of cheating to make themselves not look bad. Because really the Astros are the only team who ever got caught cheating and it was severe the thing that frustrates me about Astro fans continuing to try and defend themselves is like they didn't get punished. Um, I, if everyone remembers how upset I was game six of the World Series in the eighth inning when the Astros had it all wrapped up and Ken Rosenthal went on his own Bill Shakespeare monologue and told us all why we should forgive the Astros now for cheating uh, in 2017 now that they were going to win another World Series. Like that had anything to do with anything. New GM, a lot of new players, new uh, manager. Um but I just can't stand that we're doing – like how much information can get relayed to a guy from side-eyeing his dugout while he's waiting for a, a, a major league pitcher to deliver a pitch? I mean average fastball velocity is 93 miles an hour in major league baseball right now, a little north of 93 miles an hour. I think you have like – what is it, Trevor? A one one-hundredth of a second to react to a, a 93-mile-an-hour fastball. Um, yes, so I doubt he's getting – less. Yeah, I doubt he's getting a lot of information from it. Uh, the last thing I'll say is if you don't want Aaron Judge to hit two home runs off you, it's less about tipping pitches and more about not throwing a, a cement mixer slider belt high to the guy who set the AL home run record. Um, there was, uh, and the last thing I'll say, they were obviously tipping. He was obviously getting some sort of information. That's not cheating, though. That happens in baseball all the time. I played for a college baseball team. Sorry, Shepard, I'm going to air you guys out if anyone in the PSAC's listening to this. They probably still run it. We would have teams signs picked by the third inning when I was at Shepard. And if our head coach said, trust your hands, here comes something off speed. If he didn't say a word, it was a fastball. And our offense would just go bonkers after the third inning typically. And we would score 10-plus runs a game. It's partly how we hit 88 home runs a year. I mean, so, like, this happens, and it's completely legal as long as you're not using a video camera to do it and banging on trash cans like the Astros were. Like, if they're tipping – that's on them. Like you got to be able to see it. That's all I got. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that there's obviously a lot to unpack with the situation and the fact that well-respected announcers decided to make a point of it on air is questionable. Um, the fact that pot like Twitter accounts are taking it and running with it and, and, Blue Jays fans are all up in arms. Like that's just real typical quick, real quick. Sorry, reaction. Toronto fans. There's no fan base in sports than Toronto fans that love to make excuses more than them. Refs, umpires, the other teams cheating. Like there's a lot of bad fan bases out there. Toronto fans take the cake. Maple Leafs, Raptors, Blue Jays. You'll never hear a fan base make an excuse like a Toronto fan base. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, I'll apologize there to our brethren <laughs> up in up in the Great White North because uh, uh, we we don't hate you. We just we just no, don't I'm love just you. Apparently, like yeah, yeah. That's all. So um, the fact that that was kind of presented to the listener and and obviously caught traction on social media almost instantly is kind of sad and disappointing in the fact of that I'm assuming these guys have been around the game of baseball for long enough to know that it's not something like we're not in college football where the the offensive coordinator is holding up a sign because you're audibling into a run play because they only got six in the box, right? That's not what we're doing here. This is something where obviously it was so late and it was so obviously somebody was picking up on it that they're just tipping signs or catcher had his signs too far out, whatever it was. I mean, this is something that we have seen. I've actually never been a part of a team who's effectively run the, you know, trust your hands or something like that. Last year, we didn't really think it was necessary. We never really picked signs. Quite frankly, we never were good enough, but this is my whole complaint with sign stealing anyway. And I'm sorry to offend Dan and his fellow pitching coaches, you're all kind of dummies and you all kind of fall into these creatures of habit on, of like on, 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 after the first inning, you can kind of figure out what's going to what the pitcher's strength is, how the plan of attack is. And we could sell out on pitches in certain counts. No doubt you can do that. But like, because the game of right. So this is, and this is my point that I make every time we talk about pitching and pitch calling, whenever it comes up is like, Everyone makes it such a big deal. And like, I'm sorry, I sat there for four years and maybe it would have been a little bit better. I mean, I like, obviously I did my homework and I put a plan together, but what was I always going to fall back to is what my guy can do better than what the hitter can't hit. And to your point, like sometimes that's what it is. I mean, there was a situation and in, in where you and I were sitting next to each other in the dugout the year we coached together. And there was a particular player on another team who had to know we played a double header and I threw two different pitches to him the entire day and they all spun. So like sometimes it's as simple as that, right? It's about execution. And that's why in baseball, like not excusing what the Astros did, because if you do legitimately know what's coming, you have a significant leg up. That's one thing. But at the end of the day, like being able to sell out on a pitch, if we're not sign stealing in general, like I completely agree with you. Like, and it has nothing to do with dummies or whatever. Like, if you're a catcher and you're back there and you got to get out, like hitting's really hard, I'm going to take my chance that, you know, my pitcher in the Major League Baseball who's throwing 98, that's going to be better. Like the odds are we're going to get this thing and you're going to get that, whether you swing through it, whether you don't put it in play hard, whether you smoke it right at one of the eight guys standing out there, like that's what we're going to fall back on, right? Because it's so, it's so tough. So, um, from like outside of a sign stealing thing, when you talk about like calling pitches, it's not that big of a deal. Now tipping pitches is because if you have, and I, if you know what's coming, then you do have a distinct advantage. Well, even then that was the sixth straight slider that they have thrown to Aaron judge. So, and it was a bad at what one. point. Yeah. And, and exactly. So, you know, he's already keyholed in on a slider and specifically one he can handle and it just happened to be the one that he got, right? So when you look at what how your plan of attack was and how Aaron Judge is approaching every at-bat knowing he's Aaron Judge and he has the highest slugging percentage in baseball on fastballs up in the zone and he dominates the fastball, he dominates the heater, he can go big fly to every part of the field, 
Well, it's easy to understand that this reliever who throws a really good slider who has had a tendency to flick a couple straight to me is probably 85 to 90% likely to throw that pitch, right? Ryan Zimmerman used to talk about it all the time when he played that he would sit there and he would actually sit pitches. And if you threw three fastballs and he was sitting slider, like in Aaron Judge's shoes, sitting slider in that situation, he goes up against a guy um, who is predominant sliders to right-handed power hitters, right? And he goes fastball, middle cut, fastball, middle cut, fastball, middle cut. He wouldn't swing at any of them, and he'd walk back to the dugout with a strikeout. And then his next at bat, if he was sticking with the same approach where he's like, hey, if I get my slider, I need to hit it. And the guy went fastball, middle cut, fastball, middle cut, fastball. He would be over two with two strikeouts, and he wouldn't care. Right. Because that was what he did. These big league hitters with the information that they have with the analytics and the data and the pitcher tendencies and the way pitchers plan of attacks are nowadays, you're 85 to 5% to 90% likely to get a certain pitch. And you can sell out on that. And if a guy flips the script on you and let's just say sneaks a heater by Aaron judge and judge is late on it. It's a good pitch. You tip your cap, you walk back to the dugout and you take your strikeout. But a guy like Aaron judge is sitting there going, I hit 60, 60 plus for a reason last year. I hit 62. I'm one of the best power hitters in the game. I'm in a two strike count with first base open. What am I getting here? Right. Flips over a dumpy slider. I hit it a long way. Okay, so even if you didn't tip it, it doesn't matter because he was probably sitting slider in that count anyway. Right. Well, and you threw a cement mixer. Like that's the other thing about that pitch. It was a, it was a slider that was middle middle. Like Aaron Judge, that's he gets paid to hit that pitch. He hit sixty two of them last year. I will to flip the script on you. The other thing with pitch calling too, like most hitters. Are, think they're way smarter than they are and overthink at bats. And how many times do you see a guy swing wave at three sliders in a row that are out of the zone? So like, again, it all ends up being execution at the end of the day. Like you have to be able to hit the pitch. You have to be able to execute your pitch on the mound because just as much as, as pitchers will fall into tendencies, hitters will too at what they're going after and what they're seeing. So, you know, in a situation where you're tipping pitches, um, you know, I do think that you have the advantage when that happens, but you have to execute at the end of the day as long like and the Yankees are in no wrong here. Like as long as there isn't a camera feed from center field and we have pitch come anyway to like get rid of this. Like so I don't think there's any possibility that they were cheating. Yeah. Well, since we had 13 minutes and 20 seconds of rationality, I'm going to go off the hinges here maybe to get some attractive attentions. The Yankees are definitely cheating. Josh Donaldson was looking over the dugout in October and he still could have a great October. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, Aaron Judge only hit 62 because he was cheating. It's so obvious. And he's obviously doing it again this year. They're obviously big cheaters and, and nobody wants them to be successful because they've cheated since 1930. So. Um, what do you think about that take there? I think that's what we need to make sure hits socials tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So we're going to transition to the other side of New York. So um, for our mid-Atlantic New York brethren, uh, we're going to talk a lot about New York City specifically. So I know we've been holding off what it feels like for weeks here. Uh, we haven't talked about the Mets. We haven't talked about the Yankees. And now we're just putting it all into one episode. So you know, Dan and I, anybody who's listened to this episode since 
episode one, any opportunity to kick the Mets while they're down, we're going to take advantage of it because we don't necessarily think they're going to be playing this bad in August. So we're going to take advantage of an opportunity to talk completely down on this team and just rag them. Um, so obviously they've struggled a little bit. They haven't won a series since some point in April. I don't exactly know the date. Um, yeah. yeah. So April 20th has been since they've won a series. They're still playing 500 baseball. So, you know, they're not getting swept. They're not getting dominated in any capacity, but they're not winning series against teams they should handle, right? They haven't exactly had a murderer's row schedule. They just came off a weekend with the nationals and we'll talk about some stuff that happened this past weekend. Um, but I think the primary focus here to remember is the rotation has struggled to stay healthy, right? We can talk about the offense. We're going to talk about the offense. I'm going to enjoy talking about the offense. But when you have guys like with the names of Justin Verlander hitting the IL to start the year, that can hurt your pitching staff, obviously. Max Scherzer's combining the suspension along with some neck problems, some injuries he's dealt with over the last couple of years, that's going to hurt your rotation. Those are those guys combined are making roughly $84 million just this year. So if they're not making starts, if they're not posting, you're already at a disadvantage. Carlos Carrasco is a guy who was really, really good for them last year. He's been struggling with injuries. They found bone chips in his elbow. They got him cleared up. He looked sharp in a rehab outing. Now you're starting to see this rotation round in the form of what they had expected it to be, right? You're getting these guys back healthy, but what's the thing that's going to hang over this rotation through the course of this year, whenever injuries crop up, all three of these guys are over 35 and they're making a lot of money to be over 35. And we've talked about this before. The only correlation between age and injury is the older you get, the more hurt you are right? Like that's just a matter of fact across all sports. So you're investing almost a hundred million dollars between three guys that are all over 35. And you cannot expect that these guys are going to go out there and post for 30 starts the way Sandy Alcantara went last year. And if you don't have the production on the other side of the ball to back that up and to miss those guys and get an egg from David Peterson, but still go win a ball game, you're putting yourself in a bad hint. So from the pitching side alone, Obviously, these guys haven't stayed healthy, but what are some other things that stand out to you that have been kind of the key to their struggles? Let's call it what it is. It's bad roster construction. This is the exact concerns we had in the beginning of the year, and it's not like we were making baseless claims you know, on the fact that we don't love the Mets. We were making these claims from, a, I think, an up, when we do this and when we talk about these teams, we do it from an unbiased lens. We both have the ability to do that. Do we love the Mets, either one of us? No, but we can look at it. And last year we lauded them in the middle of the year because they were playing great baseball. This was bad roster construction. What bit them in the postseason last year was an offense that didn't slug enough. They did nothing to address it. Matter of fact, they paid a bunch of money to Brandon Nimmo, who you knew wasn't going to slug. We talked about the concerns on the offensive side. We also talked about the concerns on the pitching side. The pitching side, like – I'm so sick and tired of the injury luck excuse in all sports. Now, if we're looking at baseball from a whole, which is a discussion for another day, the amount of injuries and the way pitching looks right now and the way offense looks with the rule changes, it doesn't look fun right now. The amount of pitchers that are getting hurt, like whether you want to call it pitch clock, I don't know what to blame it on. We need a little more data to back it up. We're only a month and a half into this thing. Is scary, but from the Mets standpoint, like you employ your two highest paid pitchers, the two guys who you 
are counting on, we're counting on in the offseason, to win you a division title, win you a World Series, because that's what the expectations are in New York right now. Both sides. Yankees, Mets, it's winning a World Series. You put two two 40-year-old pitchers. That's unheard of. I mean, it was nuts when Jamie Moyer was pitching in his 40s. It was kind of crazy when Bartolo Colon was doing it. Two guys, two Hall of Famers, without a doubt. But the fact that, like, oh, we've had terrible injury luck. You should have built better starting pitching depth. Like, of course Verlander and Scherzer weren't going to make 30 starts in a year. How many 40-year-olds have made 40 starts in a year in Major League Baseball? Not very many, a fraction. Not only are you talking about being a professional athlete into your 40s, that takes like crazy amounts of skill and luck and work and time. When you think of Tom Brady, LeBron's 38, like those guys are, you think of those two and you think of two of the greatest athletes ever. You're throwing a baseball and they're not Jamie Moyer who's out there throwing 86 and pitching with craftiness. Greg Maddox pitched until he was late in his career because those guys spotted it up and they weren't max effort. And it was an era where we weren't putting as much, you know, pressure on our elbows with every fastball we throw. You're talking about two power pitchers, two guys who throw a baseball 98 miles an hour. That puts so much force on your elbow. And biology tells us that as you get older, your body can't withstand the things it could 10, 15 years ago, plus add up all the innings they've thrown in their career. It was a shaky investment. To go from DeGrom to Verlander was a huge risk. So why, like, you then expected that Tyler McGill, who's coming off an injury, you know, a, a season-ending injury, David Peterson, who's never had success in Major League Baseball, and all these guys, Carlos Carrasco, who's over 35, these guys are going to be your backfillers to the guys that are probably going to miss starts. Like, that's what you're throwing out there. And, yeah, sure, David Peterson is a fine seventh guy in a rotation. You need someone to take a turn in the rotation. You have a double header, and you need an extra guy. Throw him out there. He's done it enough. But when you, when these guys start having to take a turn every fifth day for three, four weeks at a time, it exposes you. David Peterson has an eight ERA. Eight. He's one in six. He's tied for the most starts on their staff. He's thrown 39 innings. He has given up. He's a, a whip that's almost two. Like, that's not good. Kode Senga, like, that was your other big piece to come in and be your mid-rotation arm. You knew he was going to struggle. He is a rookie. I don't care how many innings he threw. Shohei Otani struggled his first year in the States. He's one of the best pitchers. Sanga can be an ace in the future. If you're looking at what, what's happening right now, he's not like he's, there's going to be some lumps. He's learning how to pitch in Major League Baseball. I think the roster construction was terrible. Everyone was freaking out over the reliever who got hurt. Your starting pitchers are geriatric. Like, <laughs> what is that's where that's where we're going with it. Like, what did you expect? They weren't going to make 33 starts this year. Blame it on anyone you want. But really, it's the roster construction of the front office to think that Scherzer, who battled injuries last year for you, was going to stay healthy this year. Justin Verlander, 40 years old, two years removed from Tommy John surgery, pitched until November last year, threw a million innings. Like, why didn't the Astros sniff your offer? It's almost like well, they were with him all of last year and had a bunch of information on his, his physicals. So my throwing Max Scherzer into this is tough because they had already signed him. 
And that was, you know, pairing Max Scherzer coming off the Dodgers success and the national success. Like you can't go back and take that contract away. This no, offseason. but you know, but right. you have the information that his contract's on your books. But that's, come on, man. Can I finish my point? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but then you double down right. and go get Justin Verlander on top of it and say, we've already had Max Scherzer up and down with injuries. We've already had him up and down with success. I mean, this is a guy who... Yes, the suspension lumped in the middle. He was giving up home runs at an absurd rate for Max Scherzer. His fastball's down to 92-93, and sure, it's still a good pitch. He's still got the slider. He can still attack hitters in multiple different ways. But you're doubling down on a guy you've already seen be old and come off of injuries and have to battle that, and you're going to go sign a guy who's older who's thrown more innings recently. And yes, the velo has been great. I'm sure the physical came out fine. I'm sure he's in great shape, all the things like that. And then your third, third guy you want to throw in that rotation to Jose Quintana, who's 34 oh, years we old. We talked about him. So he let's just stepped on the mound. Exactly. So let's just combine the senior living community that we have out there in Queens and just put together a pitching staff that is Sure, if everything goes right and Jose Quintana is the guy he was last year, Scherzer and Verlander stay healthy. Verlander's coming off a Cy Young award. It's not like this stuff has completely fallen off a cliff. Cookie Carrasco was phenomenal in the second half last year. Really got rolling. He's a slow starter notoriously, so you rely on getting him healthy for the second half. Tyler McGill was bumping 97s, 98s early in the year last year and looked like a really good pitcher. Okay, I can see the five that you have there. But this isn't MLB the show. You right. don't just build this roster and just hope that these guys show up just because they are the names that they are. No, you have to make sure they're physically ready to go into that. And I don't know what the other option would be, right? They felt they needed to replace DeGrom with an ace, right? DeGrom has his own health question mark. So I'm not even going to criticize them for not getting DeGrom back because we've seen that forearm has been in bad shape for three years now, right? And he has not gotten right. He hasn't blown out, which is a good sign, but he's just not gotten right. So he has his own baggage with it, but then to turn around and just grab a guy who's older than DeGrom, more innings than DeGrom, arguably less athletic than DeGrom, the way DeGrom moves on the mound, you at least have peace of mind that you know his movement allows him to throw 99 miles per hour. Not that Verlander doesn't, but to just double down on all of that and just hope for the best, I don't know. Do you spend the offseason last year instead of doing something like this and trying to trade for a young starter um, with a team with depth. I mean, we obviously saw Pablo Lopez be available in trades. Do you try to poach maybe a Joe Ryan from the Twins after they had gotten Tyler Maley? Maybe go get Tyler Maley from the Cincinnati Reds. You get the combination of some high upside guys with stuff compared to, but again, Billy Epler, Steve Cohen, all these guys have talked about it. They want to build from within and add through free agency. And we're at that point where the guys that they want to build from within on aren't ready. So you're either trading them for pieces to add to your roster or you're spending money on free agents. And Verlander was the best option they had. And they felt like they needed to replace DeGrom in some capacity. So obviously in hindsight or criticizing, I don't think it was good moves. I just don't know what the better option would be because could you imagine this roster on the offensive side without Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, or Mark Ventos knocking down the door and actually pushing some of these bums that they roll out there, one through nine? 
Well, I think for me, the issue with the roster building is, is like, you know, the uh, uh, one of the best lessons I've ever learned in life is like you make a plan to be able to adjust from that plan. So it's great to sit there and go, hey, we're going to build from within and sign free agents. For years now, the free agent starting pitching market has been like playing with hand grenades, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen. The middle rotation market is even worse. Guys like Taiwan Walker, who's been much better his last two outings, but guys like Taiwan Walker are getting $70, $80 million contracts because they eat innings. That's not healthy roster construction to me. Yes, it is great to be able to say, we're going to build from within. We're not going to trade these young players. But you and I talk about this all the time as well. Trade Francisco Alvarez. Be able to develop and draft and scout because these guys, like Alvarez has looked terrible because he's probably not ready in the he's big He's turning around. Yet. He's turning kind around. Kind of. He's shown some power, but he hasn't looked ready. He hasn't. He and, and that's my point is like, oh, great. He's the number one prospect in baseball. That doesn't guarantee you anything when he gets to major league. It's a bunch of people like you and I watching him play in the minors and projecting out. It's one of the hardest things to do in sports. Drafting and and projecting, right, all the way down to the college level when you're trying to recruit. It's hard. So sometimes knowing where your roster is and being honest with yourself and saying, look, we have to move one or two of these guys or we're not we're going to take a step back this year. Also, the other option that you have is like you can get more creative. If you had signed two or three if you had taken flyers on two or three guys instead of paying that money to Verlander and also taking a chunk of it and made your offense better, so now you did have six, seven starting pitchers that you could run out there. Like to me, especially with pitching, and you couldn't foresee that the, the injuries were going to be this high with the pitch clock, you would have had to be really smart to kind of, I think, be like, oh, this is going to happen. We better stockpile. But imagine if the Mets went in there and they had signed, uh, you know, some back end rotation guys, maybe a middle rotation guy. And then that's not 35 years old like Jose Quintana and then paid some more money to a bat. Now you're like, okay, well, their offense got better. Their pitching staff is going to be led by Scherzer. And they're going to also have a couple of, you know, Senga's here. He's a rookie. And I don't know, throw some, they re-signed Taiwan Walker, who had a two pretty good years. Well, like York, Chris Bassett walked too. Chris Bassett comes back or any of these other guys. I don't care. Sign Kyle Gibson, who's done the job for the Orioles for what they've needed him to do. Have four of those guys for the price that you paid one Justin Verlander. Like that's the only yeah. thing that like frustrates me a little bit is like there is like you have to be able to get creative. This is what the problem is. And the Phillies ran into it for years until they knocked it out of the park last year. It was like, just signing big checks to the highest names makes your fan base extremely happy in December, January, and February. But once the games get rolling, it doesn't always pan out. Most of the time, it doesn't. How many times have we seen teams go for it? The Padres aren't playing great still. The Phillies the Phillies themselves aren't playing great. So, like, you have to be able to get creative and, you know, this – organization in this front office has clearly just said, we're going to sign blank checks and we're going to get the biggest names. And they've kind of ignored some of the other things. I mean, shoot, go back to Correa. The Giants got a deal done. We're ready to sign him. He failed his physical. And the next night, the Mets were announcing a, a signing. Like, clearly they don't care. 
about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's funny because we, we obviously were adamant about the questions of the Carlos Correa signing, but looking at it now, and I know the prospects are coming up, kicking the door in, they could use a Carlos Correa. And I know Carlos Correa has not been great with the, with the twins so far this year, but you add a Carlos Correa to this lineup. It looks a lot better because the lineup that they were rolling out there. Now, I think that's the big thing to preface because we're going to talk about the offense here um, right now is who's a guy that they've needed who has missed time? Nobody. Uh, Right. Nobody. And you're still looking at an offense that is struggling. So these are the guys that they're intending to roll out there in October, right? You got Vogelback as your DH, platooning with Tommy Pham. Starling Marte seems to have lost his legs. Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil have been exactly what you expected them to be, and it's just good, but it's not great. Pete Alonso has been better than you've expected him to be. You can make an argument that he's the best power hitter in baseball, right? Until this little power drought that he's been through. Um, okay, sure, their catching platoon hasn't been in good shape, and Thomas Nito and Omar Navarra is going down, and they had to call up Francisco Alvarez, maybe like you said, before he was ready. But when you're relying on Thomas Nito and Omar Navarez, you're not in a good position to be successful. And you look at this lineup and going back to this weekend against the Nationals, against the Washington Nationals, the garbage Washington Nationals, the team that is intending to lose baseball games at this point in time, they did not hit a single home run in a four-game series. Think about what baseball is today in the game, in the environment we have today, in the hitting landscape that we have today, and not hitting a home run over a four-game series. That's unbelievable to think about. Pete Alonso's leading the team with 13. The next closest is Lindor with six. So we're already talking about the fact that, yes, this team, in terms of across the board, they're below average in home run output across the lineup. But you also have the guy who's second in the league in home runs. So it's not even like it's spread throughout your lineup. It's one guy, huge gaping gap, and then your next guy in Francisco Lindor, who's supposed to be a stud and who's supposed to be your superstar. I mean, when you look at the teams that are around them in terms of home run output, they're sitting at 41 in the year. They're one ahead of the Pittsburgh Pirates, four ahead of the Miami Marlins, five ahead of the Colorado Rockies. Yes, the Houston Astros are down there with 36, which is just massively concerning. They're right behind the Philadelphia Phillies, which again is massively concerning. But you can point to the fact that the Phillies lost guys with the name of Reese Hoskins. They lost Derek Hall, who was supposed to replace him. Bryce Harper was missing time, right? So it comes as no surprise that the Phillies aren't hitting for power. Houston Astros haven't had Jose Altuve, who's pretty much their, you know, the straw that stirs their drink. Every other team in that area is not very good and not expected to be very good. And it's just worrisome because, again, this is the lineup that they thought was going to win them ballgames in October. Coupled with what they did with the starting pitching, to think that this lineup, which is a lineup that largely outperformed their expected numbers last year, to think that they were going to come back and do it again is kind of negligent to me. Like you like you look at their expected numbers from last year, you had six guys 
outperformed their expected numbers and you were like, yeah, let's do it again. Not to mention, how old is Starling Marte now? He's another guy, 35 years old. That's another guy that you were really expecting to be good in his age 35 season. And I know everyone's going to scream and shout and pound the table that they have three top prospects in Vientos, Beatty, and Alvarez. And it's like, but again, you to count on those guys to do heavy lifting is outrageous. They have six guys in their lineup that have 25 or more at-bats on the year who are OPSing under 700. League average OPS is 700. Six guys who have had 25 or more at-bats are below average power and on-base output. That is like, that's a bad offense. That's a terrible offense. Brandon, uh, Brandon Nimmo, who like you paid eight years, what was it, eight years, 108? You paid him a hundred plus million dollars a year. Hundred twenty to, to hit three fourteen, which is great. But again, his expecting batting average is two ninety. Brandon Nimmo hitting two ninety does nothing for you because he doesn't slug. Jeff McNeil, Jeff McNeil's slugging percentage is below four hundred. Think about that. And they signed him to an extension too. He's hitting two seventy with a slugging percentage below four hundred, and that's a guy who you hit fifth. Most days behind Pete Alonso, if you're if you're you want to talk about pitching coaches being dumb, if Pete Alonso at any point sees any type of pitch to hit at this point, you're crazy. And I'm sorry, but this will probably be the most hot takey that you'll get me on this is like Francisco Lindor has been a complete disaster in New York. I don't care what everyone says. I'm tired of like take. Your baseball savant numbers, everyone who throws them at me, and shove them up your butt. The New York Mets gave him a bunch of money. They gave up a bunch of prospects. They gave up a guy in Andres Jimenez who's turning into an all-star caliber player for this guy to come in and be the future of their franchise and be there forever and be the face of that club. And those numbers have not, have not, he has not performed up to that. Is that his fault that they traded those guys for him and they signed that, con- they gave him that contract? No. Anyone who's sane is going to sign their name on the contract. It's not his fault they paid him that. But there does become some sort of responsibility when you're supposed to be that guy to, like, step up your game a little bit. And he hasn't. He has not. Like, sure, he's hit the ball hard a couple years. And he hit for power last year. And he drove in runs when he had the opportunity. He's not playing it. He has yet to play at all-star level in a New York Mets uniform. You wouldn't even – where would you put him in the top shortstops in baseball? He's getting paid – and build as a top shortstop in baseball, and he's not even he doesn't even crack what the top seven at this point. He is not off the top of my head, yeah. Tough. Right. Like off the top of your head, he's not cracked like you would you, there's easily seven shortstops, and there's probably more if we dug into it. Like he should get a lot of the blame for it too, because he's kind of to me been a straw man in New York. Yeah. So I'm going to push back on one thing here. Brandon Nimmo hitting 290 is still valuable because he does take his walks. walks. I know he doesn't slug as much as you'd like, but they say one for one, 400 yeah. slug or 400 on base percentage is, is a little bit more valuable than I think good. we give yeah. credit for. Um, so I do want to it give just, him credit, not, but and in fairness to him, sorry, you're absolutely right because that is like 400 on base percentage is impressive no matter who you are, but it's a shame when no one can drive you it. That's that and that's that was going to be my next point is that's not your Bonnie and Clyde type three four hitter that you want to win a World Series, right? If you have Brandon Nimmo at the top with Francisco Lindor performing like Cleveland 
Indians, Francisco Lindor, and being an MVP candidate backed up by Pete Alonso, who is going to hit 25 to 30, potentially 40 home runs year in and year out. Yeah, that's Brandon Nimmo becomes worth $20 million a year or whatever he's making exactly. But he doesn't have that backing him up, you know. And you mentioned the prospects, and I do kind of want to give a little bit of credit and love to those guys. Mark Ventos has been unreal in triple ball right now. He is he has hit five home runs in his last seven at bats coming into the, to today. That was as of yesterday. So five home runs in his last seven at bats, not games at bats, which is just bonkers to think about. But I don't know where he's going to play. Right, because you have Brett Beatty, who's really good, who has looked pretty good in his short time in the big leagues. He's going to take his lumps, but he's a guy who can show some power. And then obviously Francisco Alvarez, a guy that everybody's really high on, but he's struggling to draw his walks. He's kind of an all or nothing hitting hitter right now. But you mentioned these guys are going to take their lumps. They're not supposed to be guys that are supposed to change a lineup right away. In terms of their prospect status, they are um, deemed that. Brett Beatty's a top 10 guy. Alvarez was arguably number one. Ventos is obviously rocketing up some prospect rankings right now with the performance he's had. But you just cannot expect these guys to come up and be the linchpin of an October bound lineup. Right. Maybe they can provide some power for a team that needs power, that really, really, really needs power. And maybe that's all you're expecting them to be. But that's a lot to expect for a guy that's 20, 21 years old, that's never faced big league pitching, that has to adjust once they get a game plan against him, once they get information about what he struggles with. It's just a lot. Those guys are as talented as anybody on this roster. They could really use a Brett Beatty to step up and become that superstar, or Mark Ventos continue his hot streak up in the big leagues, but that's just a lot of expectations to put on young guys that aren't necessarily a guaranteed to hit at any level. I mean, look at Bobby Witt, right? Bobby Witt was supposed to be a superstar. He hasn't exactly been the best player and he's playing in a tough situation in Kansas City, but Bobby Witt was a better prospect than all three of these guys could even think about being, right? And Bobby Witt has had his lumps. He's had his ups. He's had his down. So he's still been productive as a player, on the whole, but it's not a linear progression for any prospect. And the last point I'll leave you with, and we might, we might as well make short shirts for this at this point, three run home runs win in the postseason. You want to know why you lost to the San Diego Padres in the wild card series. Sure. Buck Showalter's game of not pitching Jacob deGrom in game one or game two or whatever it was. If we win game one, we're not going to pitch deGrom. We're going to get him for game one against the Dodgers. We'll have fun because the Padres are playing the Dodgers and you're teeing off at Liberty National down in uh, Secaucus, New Jersey. All right. Because the boys are getting this, the Statue of Liberty in the background when they're playing 18. Because you, if you don't beat the Padres, you're not playing deeper in the playoffs. You need to be able to hit three run home runs to win in the playoffs. And you had guys like Blake Snell and Joe Musgrove come and shove it in Queens and dominate you and then go on a run. So if they're not going to figure this out, I don't know what the options are. I don't know who's going to be available at the trade deadline. I really hope the Mets selfishly do not get Shohei Otani um, because they don't deserve it. That fan base doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve to have nice things. Um, So that's going to be the last thing I leave you with. So Dan, any closing thoughts? I know on the Mets, we are like a hot take machine. So it's pretty fun and entertaining to get into. I have a, I just have a couple. One, I botched the stat earlier. It's six guys with 60 or more at bats have under 700 OPS. So like that's concerning. And like, yeah, look, I don't mean to be too hard on 
the prospects yes, because no, not on the prospects. Those the, like Alvarez no. and Beatty, like I don't mean to be, I'm trying to be hard on that. Like the thought process of, Oh, we can just pull them up and they'll save us. And sure. If you want to say Alvarez has looked back, Francisco Alvarez has struck out 25 times in 71 at bats. Yeah. I ain't going to get it done. Daniel, like, Everyone, it was cute when Daniel Vogelbach was going first at home last year after they traded for him, and we all love this guy. You think they still love him? That guy is, he's supposed to be there to, to add power to your, he's slugging under 400 too. Like, great move. Who didn't see that coming? There's a reason he's played for six different franchises in his career, because he's not, in, he's a 4A player. That's what he is. He's a 4A power hitter. Um, It's bad roster construction, and I don't, What's going to save them? Because they've played one of the easier – I saw the graphic today. I don't know what it's based on. I guess it's everybody's current record. They've played one of the, the the ten easiest schedules in baseball to this point. So, like, if they don't figure out something to turn around, one thing that they do have is arguably the best manager in baseball. Buckshaw Walter's fantastic. He made that mistake, and in, in, uh, he, he's known to make postseason pitching mistakes, right? Um Golly. He, did, I mean, the Zach Britton. This is twice now. That's two moves that everyone sitting on their couch is screaming at the TV, and, and they all turned out right with Zach Britton, and then last year with Degrom. But I, I just, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to save them this year. Keep Vientos in the minors and then trade him. That would be stupid at this point now because you've, again, you've pushed all of your chips to the middle of the table, and when you've done that, you then have to be able to get really creative if you're going to save yourselves. They haven't shown the ability this offseason proved that they don't really Billy Epler doesn't know how to get creative. Um Yeah. Well, they're in I, trouble. They're in trouble right now. They really are. Yeah, and I, I I said this in the offseason and when we talk about the Mets a lot, it's Steve Cohen says he's gonna spend stupid money, but last time I checked, you don't get rich spending stupid money. Right. They've spent stupid money the last two off seasons. They're probably at a point, not going to be the seeing the results that Steve Cohen imagined he'd be seeing the results for how much money he's putting out. They're going to have to take a step back, reevaluate where they're spending that money, and you're going to start to see the Mets maybe attacking free agency in a different way. Shohei Otani, he's a unicorn. He's different. Sure, go throw $600 million at him. He probably is going to be valuable enough to to be worth that. No questions asked from me on that. Um, but I think they aren't going to be throwing money at very many 40 year old starters again, no matter what their name value is. I do want to give an update. So in the third inning, bottom of the third, uh, the third Luis Rojas, the third base coach for the Yankees creeped out of the coach's box and John Schneider, ironically, um, started yelling at him and also yelled, shut up, fat boy, which is ironic coming from anybody from the Schneider family um, because they're not exactly small in, in stature, to say the least. But so oh, they were having a little bit of a conversation. I want to say more that I don't know if, if we might have to have it edited out, but yeah, I'm, no, just, we'll, I'm we'll, just shocked we're, we're, we're yelling, shut up, fat boy, from a guy who is an alumnus of the, the university that he went to. That's all I'll say. I'm gonna leave that there. You're telling me a yeah. manager from that from that university is uh, can't control himself. We're gonna yell at a coach that he he for getting out of the coach's box. Does anyone stand yeah. in the coach's box with runners on first and second too? So like I've seen third base coaches that sit like halfway down the third base line and are ready to because in case of a knock, you can't be standing in the 
their base coaches to box, but that's besides the point. We're going into part two of MLB Dictator. We're going to pick one of our topics today. Uh, last one was really fun. Got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of you. Uh, so make sure that if you have any other ideas for MLB Dictator, shoot them our way. If you like what we're talking about, if you completely disagree, we're all on board to debate these topics. But today we are going to fire a manager and hire a replacement. Again, I want to preface that as the MLB dictator, you are allowed to do anything, anything, no questions asked, nobody stops you. So with that in mind, Dan, who are we firing and who are we hiring as their replacement? Look, I've been hard on the New York teams on this podcast. There's no secret about it. I don't, I'm not a fan of the city. My sister lived there for seven years. I still to this day ask her how she lived in a place like that. There's too many people. There's not enough green for my liking. I don't enjoy their sports teams. But I am going to be an ally today of the New York Yankees. So many of you on uh, social media have been calling for it for years. I'm firing Aaron Boone. Look, it's played out to this point. I think he's done some things that he's gotten too much ridicule for. I think he's done some things where he deserves to be ridiculed. I don't think he's been great. I also want to say that this is really hard to do because outside of the person that Trevor's naming, I don't think that there's really too many people who necessarily fully deserve it. But I'm going to go Aaron Boone. They need a shakeup. And just to make things more fun, they're going to – Take, I'm going to take Brandon Hyde from Baltimore and I'm going to put him in pinstripes because Brandon Hyde, I think, is one of the best managers going. I think his stock is skyrocketing. The Orioles have more fun than anybody in baseball. They have the bird bath in left center. Have you seen this, Trevor? Anytime the Orioles get a, yes. a uh, extra base hit, there's a guy with a water gun shooting it all over the fans. It looks incredible. I, I hope I get to a game this year. That's exactly where I'm buying the seats. I'll be in the bird bath. I'll send some videos out on social media. Brandon Hyde's got it going on. I'm putting him in pinstripes. I'm bringing him to the Bronx. He'll be the first World Series winning manager. There's no doubt about it in my mind. He's he's all they're missing in New York. He's probably how many how many guys are on the IL in Baltimore? Probably less than they have in New York. So he's he's the answer to every single one of the Yankees' problems. Um, and look, I think he he was he was the AL manager of the year last year. He gets snubbed. I think he got snubbed. By who? Doesn't matter. Um, he's an AL Manager of the Year candidate. Aaron Boone isn't, so we're going to give the Yankees one of the best young managers in baseball. The guy's awesome. You can tell the boys love playing for him. Um, you know, We'll clear it with the captain, Aaron Judge, but I'm sure he'll be on board. Uh, and maybe he'll do a guest spot every once a week on the Backside Ground Balls podcast. <laughs> I thought it. I I thought it was um, Terry Francona, and it was Terry Francona. Uh, of course, AL Tito, who's the, the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, who you could have also poached. That would have been. An you could have poached him too. Yeah. After. Yeah, that yeah. would have been interesting. But I like that. That's full. Um, Brian Kelly from Notre Dame to to LSU style, right there. I know your your college football love is always going to run deep, so you got to bring college football into our baseball podcast any way you can. Um, so, for my firing, um, I'm actually probably going to enjoy this. I always like to preface the fact that I am the most pro manager person across the world. 
I've defended managers. I was a Nationals fan when they fired them on every street corner, on every year. They were just firing managers left and right. Dusty, Davey, everybody, like everybody's gone. Get rid of them all. Um, you know, and they're, they're doing that uh, every year. And I used to get frustrated with it. Um, so I always like to preface the fact that I am very pro manager. There's only a couple of requirements that I have. Make sure the boys are in good spirits and make sure it's not a toxic environment. Be a good leader. Well, we've seen so far this year, there's only one toxic environment that has led to a lot of losses, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. Ali Marmol rubbed me the wrong way last postseason when Ryan Helsley was struggling in the out of the bullpen. He had struggled with some injuries, but he really got banged up against the Phillies, and he was getting roughed up. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what the decision was, but somehow he got injured and I thought it was a little fishy just because he didn't have somebody hot in the bullpen. I thought that was really weird. And that was kind of like my first true exposure to Ali Marmol. And I was like, I don't like the way that was handled because he, if Helsley wasn't hurt, it was our last game of the season anyway. So what's the harm of him coming up lame with an injury? And then he goes into the off season, gets fully healthy. And then they bring another guy in who ends up blowing the lead. And I'm going to hire a guy who I love. He is probably my idol. He does. He has my dream job, and it's Mark DeRosa, and he works on MLB Central every day. He was the skipper of Team USA for the World Baseball Classic. Got a lot of flack for his bullpen decisions, like it matters in the World Baseball Classic when you're trying to stretch guys out, keep guys healthy. You're, these guys are working for you basically as volunteers with no incentive other than playing for their country. I think he did a great job. I think he's respected across the game. I think you could tell by the guys that showed up to play in the World Baseball Classic. I think Arenado, Goldschmidt, they would definitely be following there. He would have a good pulse on being able to get in there, make sure whatever the Wilson Contreras situation is going on we can get that figured out you know tyler o'neill would love playing for you for him because he's he's definitely a dude's dude um so just hiring mark DeRosa, i think he'd be a great culture guy i think he'd do a great job he's not fixing the pitching rotation so i don't think they're just magically going to make the playoffs but i'm firing ali marmal and i'm bringing in mark DeRosa, my guy and uh i think is going to help turn around the st louis cardinals yeah it's a great one i mean D-Rose the best and and yeah, Ali Marmol, it's been a it's been a rocky year since he since he's taken over. I mean, it's been he, there was an issue last year in the middle of the summer too with him and a player calling him out in the media. I know he did it again with Tyler O'Neill, but there was someone last year and then that move, the Helsley move in the wild card series, um was weird. Um I was supposed to be rehearsing. I'll never forget that day. I was supposed to be rehearsing for my best best uh, friend's wedding. Um, I know people are probably surprised that I referred to someone else as my best friend, not Trevor. I love them both equally. But, uh, and, you know, we were getting directions on where we were supposed to stand and stuff, and I was just locked in on on the Phil's comeback of the Cardinals. It was a great day. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he's, he's toxic. Like you said, it's a toxic environment, and um, I just can't imagine Arenado and Goldschmidt are happy there. But uh, – they would be happy with Dero. They seem to love Dero in the World Baseball Classic, and I think, I think if Dero wanted to manage, he could get a managerial job pretty quick. To be honest, oh, I think I he's think like so. universally he really to. well liked and respected in Major League Baseball. I think he wants to a little bit more um, from because I watch MLB Central every day. Um, and from the sound of it, uh, I think he definitely is more intrigued by the idea. Um, but I don't know. It's, yeah, that's you know, a tough getting decision. that taste of competing again. 
probably really lit the spark for him. Yeah, I think that's what he said. And and definitely, yeah. I mean, you're right. He's, I think he knows the analytics too more than he lets off because uh, he has to sit up there with Bill Ripken three times a week. Sometimes we it feels like Bill so. Bill Ripken episode. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, we, already, we did that last fall. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have another one. I'm, there's no denying that John Smoltz still calls baseball games. Um, but I think that he understands it. He gets it. Um, they had uh, John Gibson because Gibby wrote a book, um, which is on my reading list for, for the next couple weeks here. Um, and he said, Gibson was saying that uh, he thinks D-Row could be a hitting coach in the game today, which I agree. He's one of the best in the business with that. Learn something new every time he gets on the on the skybox and starts breaking down a hitter. And this is the other Ali Marmol situation. Mike McDaniel with Sports Illustrated, not the cool Mike McDaniel that we all know in Miami at this point in time. Mike McDaniel, I'm sure you do a good job with Sports Illustrated, but Cardinals manager rips umpire after spring training game. He has zero class. Yep, C.B. Buckner refused to shake Ali Marmol's hand after they had some problems because Marmol was trying to make peace with Buckner. Yeah, I think that um, Buckner was more likely to be in the wrong here. But there is something that we – And that's what I was going to (laughs) say. There's something to be said, and we've learned this when we were kids. When you are surrounded by bad things happening and you send this be in the middle of all these different problems, you're probably just as much of the problem as the other people around you. Uh, So that's definitely something to keep an eye on with Ali Marmolis. This is not the first time. I can guarantee it won't be the last time because that's just how he operates. But Dan, any closing thoughts before we get out of here? It was a really fun episode. Really had a good time with this one and and super excited for what we have ahead. No, I apologize uh, if I offended anyone in uh, John Schneider's uh, alumni fan base. Fair, fair. I just think it's odd to be a larger human being and to be calling somebody else fat boy. Like, come on, man. Like, well, that's, also, that's where he's sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. What kind of insult is shut up, fat boy? Then <laughs> <laughs> you think about it. Are we on the playground? Like, what do we do? You're a major league manager and you're yelling at a dugout to shut up, fat boy. That's it's unbelievable. That's a good, that's a good point. That's a good point. Didn't think of it that way. But, you know, as somebody who doesn't use any profanities, I probably would be leaning towards. You could get more creative. Gosh dang it. Shut up, (laughs) fat boy. (laughs) You would not. You would get more creative than shut up, fat boy. You'd you'd have. Who is it? Is it Kirk Cousins or who? No, Philip Rivers. Yeah, Philip yeah. Rivers mic'd up. Gosh, yeah, dang Navit. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Every time he gets That's hit. fine. You don't have to use profanity to have a good insult, but shut up, that's fat true. boy. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, thank you to all our listeners uh, for tuning in as this will conclude our episode for today. Make sure you are subscribing to the podcast on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you can find your podcast. We post episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, always hitting your feed, 7 a.m. sharp, as long as we don't have any logistical problems, which come up because we do have lives. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Backside Ground, at Backside GB, Instagram at Backside Ground Balls, and TikTok at Backside Ground Ball. Most importantly, make sure you're sharing with five friends any way to help us grow the podcast. We appreciate it. But until next time, we'll see you guys on the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Great news. Major League Baseball is back 
the college baseball season continues to electrify. And with the help of our friends over at SeatGeek, we can get you out to whatever game you want to see. All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek, find your game you want to go to, and enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to get $20 off your first purchase. Maybe if you want to go see some NBA or NHL playoffs. I don't know. Maybe you want to go to a concert with the weather warming up throughout the country. No matter what event you're looking to go to, our friends at SeatGeek can hook you up with the best deals. Great seats at an affordable price. You can't beat it. Make sure to enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL for $20 off. That's SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL. 